what is this stuff we are downloading? Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. I am Nicky and as always, I'm joined by Greg. How are you doing this week, Greg? I'm very well, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Anything exciting been happening in your side of the world? <laughs> I mean, it's been a it's been a big new it's it's not been a big. Well, I suppose that it has been a big Scottish news week in the sense that Scotland have now qualified for the Euros. By the time you hear this, that will be quite old news, I guess. But anyway, so it's but I guess it's bigger news for the world, and obviously with the the US election results and the announcement that they seem to have found a workable vaccine for COVID, so hopefully we can start visiting our grannies again soon, celebrating goals and pubs and all that sort of thing that we just take for granted. (laughs) Yes, and in other news, the Berlin Wall has just come down. (laughs) Yeah, we we record this quite a bit in advance, uh, so that's why there is slightly older news. But yes, Scotland have qualified for the Euros. Absolutely fantastic. Did you watch any of it? I, it was on a bit late here. Uh, it kicked off at quarter to twelve, so I mean that's that's a bit late for me even at the weekend. So I got up early in the morning and watched the highlights before looking at any um, messages on from you or in or any of my pals. But I didn't go on social media or anything. I just got up and I was able to watch the highlights and sort of get a live result. I'm I'm sorry about that because obviously you're in a group chat with me and uh, our other friend who's in the UK and we were kind of texting back and forth and I did think about you probably in your bed waking up to 27 messages between us going back and forth speaking about the result. Yeah, fantastic result, uh, wonderful achievement and fucking bring on the Euros. I know, bring on England and if they'll be able to get their ducks in a row in time for next summer. Let's not just focus on England. It's about Croatia and the Czech Republic as well. There's four teams in the group. We're not going to just focus on England. <laughs> this must be... I can't think... Of, I mean, obviously, this is the first time since 1998 that Scotland have qualified for a, an international tournament. But I wonder if Scotland's ever had such a promising group. Because usually we get... You know, I think about the World Cup. We had Brazil... <laughs> <laughs> First game of the tournament, Scotland versus Brazil. We had Norway, who were a good team back in those days, and Morocco. So we, so we, th- I remember looking at the at the fixtures and thinking, right, we'll get pumped off Brazil. We might manage a draw with Norway, and then we'll 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 beat Morocco. And I think we played quite well against Brazil. In fact, I think Scotland, did Tom Boyd, not score the first goal. Oh no, Tom Boyd scored the, the he scored the own goal, didn't he? He did. John Collins scored a penalty. Um it was it was one nil Brazil and then John Collins scored the penalty. And then yeah, it was it was quite I think it was maybe like the sixty ninth minute or something, uh Tom Boyd scored a very unfortunate own goal. I think yeah. it came off his chest, actually. Yeah. And that was yeah, everyone was disappointed. But hey, to lose two one to Brazil. In yep. the opening match, and it was the opening match of France '98. The whole world would have watched that. So yeah, I think I think we've uh, you know you 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 got to think we've got as good a chance as we've ever had uh, going into that group. I think in days gone by, I would have looked at that group and thought no chance. Croatia, Czech Republic, England, no way. However, we seem to have built a. That's what I loved the most about this recent group of games that we've had and the celebrations after the game on Thursday night you can see there's a genuine T20 
team spirit. Mm -hmm. They are a team. It's not a group of players that have just come in to play international football. They are a team. They care about this. They care about each other. They are dedicated. And that's what I love. And I was so happy to see that. And I genuinely think we will get a result against Croatia or Czech Republic. I mean, those two games are at Hamden as well. And if all this COVID shit's over and the vaccine works, then you could have a full house at Hamden for those games. And that's intimidating for an away team. Yeah. And we pretty good record at Hamden. And then we've got to go to Wembley to play England. But hey, I wouldn't discount us. I would fancy our chances if, if the boys are fired up and... You play Braveheart the night before on TV, <laughs> and it, I think a draw or something's not out of the question. And I could see us getting out that group. We're never going to win it, <laughs> but we could do a decent chance in the Euros, I think. But yes, congratulations to Steve Clark and all of the Scotland team. But that's old news now in terms of when you're listening to this. However, what have you seen in the news this week, Greg? <laughs> Hello, this is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Well, do you remember the last time we were talking about how quite a lot of our news stories seem to come from Falkirk? I do. I vividly remember that. Yes, Falkirk is a hotbed of culture swally news items. Oh, it's it's it has proven once again to be a rich a rich seam of uh, interesting events. Um, so this one is from the Falkirk Herald. A guy in Bangkok, um, sorry, not Bangkok, <laughs> Banknok, fuck's sake, Banknok, which is a small town near Falkirk. Banknok dad threatened neighbours and the police after drinking twenty six bottles of Buckfast. Twenty six. I genuinely don't think I've ever had Buckfast. But 26 bottles, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? I mean, Buckfast bottles are quite big. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think a, bottle of Buck Fire, uh, a bottle of Buckfast is the same size as like a standard bottle of wine. So a 75cl. That's a lot. I mean, yeah. to drink 26 bottles of anything at all, to drink 26 bottles of water <laughs> is a lot. But he, he basically is... He's polished off these this this twenty six bottles of Buckfast over the space of a four day bender. So I ran the maths on it. He ha- he had to drink on average six and a half bottles a day over the four days to get to twenty six. I I also looked up how much a bottle of Buckfast goes for at the moment. It goes for eight pounds forty five. So oh, Jesus, inflation's a bastard. Two hundred and twenty pounds. This is Thomas Murphy. Uh, he told fellow village residents he would blow them up and he threatened to batter officers and their relatives to a pulp. Appearing at Falkirk Sheriff Court last Tuesday, Murphy pleaded guilty to behaving threateningly by shouting, swearing, uttering threats of violence, repeatedly banging and kicking a door and striking a glass panel uh, in someone's house. He's also admitted acting aggressively toward the police, shouting, swearing, uttering threats of violence, challenging officers to a fight, and uttering racially abusive remarks within a police vehicle whilst en route to Falkirk Police Station. This article must have the biggest understatement I've ever heard, and it comes from Mr Murphy's uh, brief. 
So the, the, the fiscal told how Murphy had also made a derogatory reference to the English and claimed his neighbours were rats and nobody would stop them getting it. After being arrested, he told officers how he couldn't care about criminal justice. I think they, should, I think they meant to write he couldn't care less. And he offered them a square go <laughs> in his jail cell. Explaining the circumstances... So here we go. This, is the, this has to be the understatement of the year. Maybe the biggest understatement ever. Explaining the circumstances leading up to the offences, Murphy's defence solicitor told the sheriff, Derek Hamilton, he seems to have drunk 26 bottles in four days. So one can imagine he wasn't thinking straight. Do you fucking think so? <laughs> <laughs> Surprised he had the power of thought at all. 26 bottles of Buckfast. <laughs> Apparently there's an element of contrition. He feels bad about it. He's repeatedly described in the poor as a man of minimal risk of reoffending. Probably because he's he's on fucking a, he's on a, a dialysis machine most of the time after his carry out. But he has said sorry. He feels really bad about it. Um, and because he showed contrition, he got away with a £700 fine. Then he had to pay a victim surcharge of £40 as an alternative to custody. I'm not really sure what that means. You can pay the fine back at 30 quid a week. Doesn't pay it all at once. So I suppose all's well that ends well. He didn't hurt anybody apart from himself. Um, upset his neighbours. So, But 26 bottles of Buckfast. If anybody knows, I mean, that must be a Guinness record, right? Do, do you think the, the Guinness Book of Records holds, uh, they've got a category for biggest carryout consumed in shortest time period? They must do. There must be something about alcohol consumed. Although the Guinness Book of Records is kind of more targeted towards children yeah. and a younger <laughs> audience. So maybe yeah. they don't have, yeah, 26 bottles of Buckfast. I mean, I, did, I mean I'm thinking like I, 26 I, bottles of wine and that's a, a hell of a, a tally. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I, mean, I just can't believe that. I mean, that's stomach pumping sort of territory. That's like a, like a, that must be like a fatal dose of Buckfast, 26 bottles, unless the guy... It's just made of like fucking iron. And I, I, I did, I did read. I can't remember if I read it or I saw it in the documentary about him. But apparently, late uh, wrestler Andre the Giant could consume a lot of beers in one go. I can't remember exactly how many. He was, uh, yeah. There's been many stories. I am a big wrestling fan, and I, yeah, I listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts and stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of stories about Andre. Kind of, he would get in a car going somewhere and he would literally get like a, a 24 pack of beer and tan them within like half an hour into the journey and be like, I need to pee. Oh, or, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, the guy was a giant, but yeah, he was, he was fucking smashing alcohol over the place. He was a massive alcoholic and that's probably why he died so early. Potentially. I thought he died because of his condition, like the, the condition that made him like so big. I thought it was something to do with that. I think it was, to be fair. It wasn't anything to do with alcohol abuse. It was to do with his condition. So there you go. Thomas Murphy. If uh, if there's a world record for Buckfast consumption, I think Thomas definitely wins it. He should uh, really team up with... I can't remember the name of our hero in last week's uh, pod, but the, the guy from Falkirk in the bookies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, they, they should team up. They'd be a great tag team to go back to wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, a kind of drunken superhero team that could roam the streets of Falkirk and sort shit out. They call themselves Bucky and Bookie because he was in the Bucky and Bookie. Yeah. That is fucking brilliant. Bucky and Bookie. That, that's it. I, I can't do any better than that, so I'm not even going to attempt it. Bucky and Bookie. 
fucking brilliant. So, yeah, that's my first story. What have you what have you found this week? If you had to hide something about your person, where would you hide it? Well, it depends what it was. Well, Let's it... say it was a bit of, a, a bit of paper. Let's see. A bit uh, of paper. I don't Where know. would you hide that bit of paper? I don't know. Probably stick it in my boxers, I guess, if it was sensitive information. Oh, in your boxers. That's fair enough. Because from the Daily Record this week, I have a news story about a Scots drug dealer had a £1,500 tick list with names and money owed by customers hidden up his bum. <laughs> this is about uh, a drug dealer and he was found with a tick list. Now, a tick list for any listeners outside Scotland is a, a kind of list of money owed. Um, but this drug dealer had his tick list hidden up his bum during a police strip search. And he tried to destroy the evidence by sticking it in his mouth. Oh, and no. You've got a bit of paper up your arse. I, I understand you're under pressure. You're getting strip searched. Are you going to really stick that in your mouth? A bit of paper that's been up your arse. But, and he must have tried to do it in front of the police as well. If, if they found it up his arse when they've been doing a strip search, and he must have like snatched it away from a policeman or a, or a policewoman and then well, tried to stop our arse-munching paper <laughs> hero, Craig Robson, was snared by officers with a stash of MDMA and cannabis after a chase where he jumped over several garden fences trying to escape. Once arrested, the 27-year-old threatened to torch a car belonging to a police officer during a vile rant. When he was being searched on his return to a police station in Edinburgh, a piece of paper was found protruding from Robson's rectum. He <laughs> he then grabbed it, stuffed it in his mouth, uh, but officers managed to stop him from eating it or swallowing it. He told the police officers that his, the paper was his tick list, names and money owned by drugs customers, and it had £1,500 on it. He appeared in court on Tuesday this week and admitted to being guilty of drugs supply. He also pled guilty to admitting to perverting the course of justice by taking the paper from his rectum and placing it in his mouth. Fucking dirty, clatty bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So our our hero was spotted on the street, dressed in black, and ran through a garden, clambering over fences and discarding bags before officers caught him. The bags contained herbal and powder matter. He was taken away in a police vehicle and he said, whilst he was in the police vehicle, I'll burn out this fucking Sheriff Patterson. I'll get him because I burnt out his little green car. The court heard that Robson then told the cops, I'll do the same to use you fuckers. I'll burn out every car outside Harwick Police Station. You and your family should be scared of what I can do Especially that cunt who arrested me. Uh, he's currently being held at the, the prison. Uh, he hasn't been sentenced yet. But he was told when he took the tick list out of his arse and he put it in his mouth, uh, they, they managed to forcibly remove it from his mouth. I much imagine like when I'm out walking my dog and he picks up something from the street and I have to literally you know, open his jaws and rip. It out. I'd imagine that's what it was like. So they they got it out of his mouth and he shouted, Fucking have it. It's a one thousand five hundred pound tick list anyway. Uh yeah, so our 
little hero is still waiting to be sentenced and it's been deferred until next month for reports. But yeah, you have to be quite committed to get a bit of paper out your arse and then stick it in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, who would, who would be a policeman or a, or a policewoman? You know what I mean? Having to deal, having to like get a shitey, dribbly bit of paper out of some arsehole's mouth. Um, you know what I mean? Out of some arsehole's mouth? You mean <laughs> out of... <laughs> Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, I don't really know what to say to that, to be honest, other than what I said already. Dirty, clatty, minging bastard. No excuse. I mean, I think you would think that he would remember. I mean, I've, I've, I've never been a drug dealer, obviously. But, um, you know, if someone owes you, if, you know, if, if you've got a bit of money going about, you would you'd remember, you wouldn't have to write it down, would you? If you're a drug dealer, presumably... You have a smartphone. There is a notes function mm-hmm. on the phone. Now, obviously, the police are going to look through your, your phone, phone yeah, yeah. probably, but they're going to look up your arse <laughs> as well. Yeah, obviously, I wasn't expecting that, clearly. <laughs> Just get a spreadsheet. It's it's a lot easier. You can, you know, sort it by, you know, date, time, money odds, yeah. you know, and then you can go and search out the people that owe you money. You put, put it on a bit of paper and stick it up your arse. You can put you can put formulas in there, and all sorts. I can't, well, we can only hope that he does some sort of kind of IT training course when he's in prison, and <laughs> he will know when he gets out what to do in future, rather than stick it on a fucking bit of William Hill's bookie slip and sticking it up his jacksey. <laughs> he can make a spreadsheet on his phone, and it's all there. And he knows exactly who to go to, when, where, and collect his money. Yeah. And he could lock it so the police can't get into it. And the password protect it. The police must have ways of circumnavigating passwords on phones and laptops and things, all right? They must I, I, I don't know. You're getting into murky territory there. I think it's all to do with the Data Protection Act. So how do they find it? How, how, do, they, how do they find all this, like, child pornography on nonces' hard drives and stuff? Yeah, but that's with people, I think, that have to give consent. There's been stories in the news about people, like, kind of, that have done stuff and they've got their phones, but they don't allow access. And I think Apple are are very, kind of, like, data protection. They will not allow people, even the police or the FBI, to get grant access to people's phones and things. Yeah, I'm sure I've read of cases of that. Yeah, so... Brilliant. I don't have to delete my search history anymore. No, just from your wife. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else have you seen this week? Um, I, I, I kind of deliberated a little bit about doing this story because it's going to make us sound like a pair of bullies. But and it's, this isn't meant with any malice, but it is funny. So it comes from the Daily Record. Um, Mum, whose name is Corona says she struggles to cope with daily abuse. This is um, 49-year-old civil servant Corona Newton. She was named after the midwife who delivered her, but she's been bullied for about her name long before the current COVID. I can imagine that when she saw her first news story about the coronavirus, she was ready to go down to the wherever it is you go to officially change her name. She said that um, she struggles to cope with the cruel jibes, with people calling her beer brands. She explained, People used to call me Guinness and Budweiser, 
That I could laugh off, but this is more frustrating, especially when it gets aggressive. Now here's a fact that I would ask her to, I would want to check here, because she said that restaurant workers often think she's playing a prank on them when she tries to book a table, but who books a table given their first name? If I book a table, I don't book it under Greg, I book it under Hurst. I, I think I do. I mm. often book a table under my first name. What's you? your name? Um, uh, do I? Maybe not. No, Kemp. K-E-M-P. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. No, I book it under my surname. You're right. I'm talking pish. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know, I do know someone who, who, who does it, but that's because his second name is a little harder to pronounce and spell, so it's easier just to do it by his first name. But if you're, if you're sensitive about your first name already. Why wouldn't you? You mean that's an easy fix? Just book tables under your second name. She said, or just make up a name. Yeah, she she explained. People have said to me as if I'm going to listen to somebody named after a virus. The and the mum of five has been sub, also been subjected to nasty cold callers who ah. So when when they call her up, they ask her to confirm her name by saying, "Is that like the virus?" <laughs> For fuck's sake. Uh, she reports that she she also said that while driving her daughter to a dentist appointment, she received a call from a man who began swearing at her. Apparently, he screamed down the phone, what does it feel like to fuck the world over? And when she attended a parents' evening, the teacher thought her daughter was being rude by referring to her as Corona. But why is her daughter not referring to her as mum? Who calls her mother by their first name anyway? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's very true. Her name was um, given to her by her parents, obviously. Like, most people are named by their parents. <laughs> fuck's sake. They were originally considering Sarah or Caroline. But when they were unable to come to a decision, they decided to name her after the midwife who delivered her. Um, apparently, Corona comes from the Latin word for crown, which itself is borrowing from Greek, uh, from Greek, which uh, in Greek it means garland or wreath. So... I don't like bullies, and, you know, I'm sorry this woman's getting a hard time, but I do think there's a number of easy fixes there. Book tables under your second name, hang up on cold callers straight away, and get your daughter to fucking call you mum instead of your first name. So, yeah, that's my second story. Um, you did, have I heard of anybody named after a popular Mexican beer brand? Not that I can think of, no. I mean, I've, I've never met anyone called Corona. <laughs> no, or... Dos Equis, or... Not even as a second um, name. Play, I, mean, I can understand, but as you said earlier, in terms of when you're calling up a restaurant, when I lived in Dubai, obviously a lot of the people answering the phones, English isn't their first language. And I would say, yep, what's the name? And I'd say, uh, it's it's Nikki. Mark? Uh, yeah, yeah, fine. Mark, yeah. So I actually used to book tables under the name of Mark when I lived in Dubai. Because it was a lot easier. When you say Nikki, they're like, you know, how do you get from Nikki to Mark? I, I don't understand. Anyway, yes, for a lot of my time in Dubai, I was known under the name of Mark. Do you know, I, I get, because apparently there's no letter G in the Arabic alphabet, apparently. So I'm told. Um, and there's obviously two Gs in my name. One at the start, one, one at the end. And um, so what a lot of uh, the locals call me is Jerge. If they see my name written down, like, you know, when I, when I go for my medicals, um, for my visa, uh, when I went to sort my driving license out in Kuwait, 
when they call my when they call my name, they call they they could they call me Jerge. Now when I go to Starbucks, obviously you know for anybody not familiar with the Middle East, quite a lot of the baristas that work in Starbucks out here are from the Philippines or from India, and I've been called Grog on my cup. You know how they they write your name in your cup? They're I called, am Grog. I've been called Grog. I've been called Gary. All sorts of things. And the thing is. I work. Well, I, I can't. I can't really say it, but I um. I basically have got a discount card for Starbucks for reasons that I won't go into. Ooh, get um, you! So I get thirty percent off. Now my name is on the card. So when I hand the card over, all they have to do is look at the card and copy my name onto the cup. But no, just make it up. Just so call I, yourself Mark. It'll I, make your life a hell of a lot easier. I tried just. I tried saying that. Just write G on the cup. But instead of, just, instead of just writing a letter G, they spell it out. So it's like G-E-E. So like a BG. Yeah. Are you the fourth BG? <laughs> the long lost, the long lost surviving BG. So yeah, so we're sorry, Corona. I hope uh, I hope it gets easier. I've got a feeling that it won't, but um, we, 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 we wish you luck regardless. Now, we've spoken about this before on the podcast. We are both a lover of Scotland's would you say it was our first national drink or our second national drink? Iron Brew. Yeah, I mean, I I think for us it's definitely it's probably the first national drink. But I suppose traditionally, marketing wise, <laughs> it's the second national drink. Now, obviously, you've lived uh, abroad. You've lived in Kuwait for a few years, and now you live in Dubai. And I've lived abroad for you know thirteen years or so. I live in Dubai now. I live in Amsterdam. So getting Iron Brew can be difficult. I mean, I, I found it here in a few places and it's imported from Scotland, which is fantastic. When I lived in Dubai, um, initially when I moved there in 2007, you couldn't get Iron Brew. Then you could. They released it there and you could get Iron Brew and Diet Iron Brew in all the shops. Then they withdrew it because apparently there was an ingredient in it that was haram. Now, I don't know what that is, I don't know if there's some sort of pork kind of thing or if it's some sort of, I don't know if fucking Iron Brew's got codeine in it or something, but there's something in Iron Brew that is not Middle Eastern approved. So that's why if you buy a can of Iron Brew in Dubai, you will see it's got Arabic writing on it because it is processed in the Middle East because Ah. it is special for that country because there is one ingredient in it that isn't in all the Iron Brew. So the iron brew I get here is imported from Scotland and it tastes like iron brew. It's fantastic. Iron brew is amazing. My wife absolutely loves iron brew. I have converted her to being a pure Scot. She loves rowies. She loves iron brew. She's sorted. She's now a pure Scot. But do you think iron brew tastes different where you drink it? I mean, you're probably going to be a bit concerned because obviously if you live in Dubai, then it, it, it does taste different because there is a an ingredient missing. But do you think it tastes different where you have it? I mean, I did, I bought a few cans of Iron Brew a few weeks ago. I found it in Lulu's and I like to have it in the fridge because as, 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 as well documented, it's quite a good straightener the next morning after you've had a few drinks the night before Iron Brew. It's better than Coca Cola and lemonade and stuff like that for kind of getting you back on your feet after a heavy night on the booze. So I bought a few cans. I, 
my, my, my daughters have drank it. I got like half of one can. Can't say that I really noticed a difference, but I also remember when I was at home, maybe last year or the year before, seeing my dad, they had apparently recently made some change to the recipe of Iron Brew, and there was a lot of people complaining that it didn't taste the same as it used to taste. But I can't say I really noticed. I don't drink enough. This was put to the test by an English TikToker. I'm not on TikTok, Greg. You on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. My daughters are on TikTok. They occasionally send me nonsense, but uh, I'm not on there. Well, he made a 1,500 mile. That's a um, proclaimer song. That's quite a that's quite a callback. It's a proclaimer song, 500 <laughs> miles, but it's also a callback to um, our hero that put the note up his arse because he had 1,500 pounds on oh. his tick list. He made a 1,500 mile round trip to see if Iron Brew tastes better in Scotland than it does in England. He posts under the username, in fact, I'm not going to give him publicity. Um, he came up with the idea uh, to make the lengthy trip after becoming obsessed with the myth that Guinness tastes better in Ireland. So he picked up the bottle of ginger from his Dorset town where he lives and he set off on his quest. He spent nine and a half hours in his car driving up to Scotland and then he bought a bottle of Iron Brew from the local Iron Brew dealership in Glasgow. It's a corner shop basically. Right, okay. So he went to the corner shop, bought a bottle of Iron Brew. Oh, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just stop in Glasgow. He drove up to the fucking Highlands. And he's got some photos on his TikTok or whatever it is. Sits on kind of the edge of this loch. And he drinks from the bottle of Iron Brew that he bought in southern England. And then he drinks from the bottle that he bought from Glasgow. And he's happy to report they tasted exactly the same. Mm. Out. People have responded to this and saying, yeah, you should have bought a glass bottle, mate. Yeah, you should have. Like, try it from a glass bottle. That's better. Because Iron Brew is better from a glass bottle. You've had plastic. You've had a fail there, mate. He said, I didn't expect there to be any difference between the regular Iron Brew and the one that I purchased in Scotland, but I was disappointed that they tasted the same. You didn't expect there to be a difference but you're disappointed that your hypothesis is all over the place, mate. Why would you drive nine and a half hours there and then drive nine and a half hours back just just to get a couple of, I, I don't know, what do they do on TikToks? They thumb up your arse or something? like The Culture Swally brought to you today by the number 1500 and a thumb up your arse. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, but the thing is, right, the iron brew that you can buy in England is it's made in Scotland anyway. It's made at the iron brew factory. Where is it again? Uh, it's near near to Gartcosh, uh, just sort of north of Glasgow. So it's going to taste this. It's going to taste the same. The reason that Guinness tastes different in Ireland is because of the. It's because the the Guinness that you have elsewhere might not have been made in Ireland. Do you know what I mean? It might have been made by a local brewery. So it will it will ch- it will change the flavour. And to your point, if it's coming out of a can or a plastic bottle, it's going to change the flavour as well. Um and that's the same for Iron Brew. I mean I I I have never quite understood why, but the only place that you can get glass bottles of Iron Brew is in Scotland. I've never seen them anywhere else in the world. And it always tastes so much better 
out of a glass bottle than anything. I, I don't really, I wouldn't really drink Iron Brew out of a plastic bottle. I'd have it out of a can and have it out of a glass bottle. I presume it's to do with kind of recycling or yeah, yeah, like I guess so. It, it, cheaper production I, I guess making a glass bottle is a lot more expensive than making a plastic bottle or a can did your mum used to get uh, or your granny uh, used to get um the glass bottles of fizzy just delivered yes bonacord bonacord snabardine yeah, yeah my mum didn't but yeah my granny did uh, yeah. every friday afternoon the bonacords lorry would come around with glass bottle i was thinking about i was thinking about this recently like my gran and papa used to get a a case of 12 bottles a week of Ibrew. And, like, my papa never... I don't remember ever seeing my papa drink it ever. My gran, she she didn't drink alcohol at all. She was teetotal. Like, I don't think she ever drank it in her life, to be honest. Um, but her advice was a small glass of Ibrew a night. And obviously, if I was there, I would get a glass after my dinner when I was staying at the weekend or whatever. But 12 bottles a week, I, I, I must ask my dad who was drinking all that Ibrew because it seems, it seems excessive for an elderly couple, one of whom never drank it, to get that every week. Maybe there was a minimum they could order, I don't know. Well, just be thankful that it was Iron Brew and not Buckfast. Well, quite, yeah. Yeah. Now, my, my other granny used to get a kind of mix, so she would get like a case of 12 and she'd get like four bottles of Iron Brew two bottles of red cola and they, a couple of bottles of soda water, a couple of bottles of strike cola, like bars. I don't know if they still make it. I used to quite like it, bars, uh, strike, coke, it was just their version of Coca-Cola. Red cola is basically, you would know it as Moray Cup in Aberdeen. I do know it as Moray Cup and yeah. we won't go into Moray Cup because I don't know if you can still get that in Aberdeen. I'd, I'd imagine the label is probably now quite I racist. They, I think they changed the label, but they had the same label up until... But not that long ago, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I remember, I can remember that label being on bottles of Moray Cup when I lived in Aberdeen in the oh, yeah, early yeah. 2000s. It wasn't long ago, yeah. So, long after the marmalade had taken gollywogs off their labels and stuff, <laughs> Bon Accord were... Bon Accord were still flying the flag for casual racism in the north of Scotland. <laughs> Apologies to Bon Accord there for not calling you out for racists, but we kind of are. Yeah. So, <laughs> there, there, there goes another sponsor. <laughs> okay, so I think that concludes the news for this week. Shall we delve into a little review? And it was your choice this week, Greg. So, what are we going to be talking about this week? Uh, I chose this week um, Gillis McKinnon, or Gillis and Billy McKinnon's um, sort of loosely autobiographical. 1996 film set in Glasgow, Small Faces. Yeah, um, I, haven't seen it for, I haven't seen it for a while. Uh, the synopsis of the film, three teenage brothers, uh, gang member Bobby, artistically minded Alan and 13-year-old Lex, are grown up with their mother in Glasgow's south side in 1968. Events which will have consequences for all concerned start to spiral out of control when Lex accidentally shoots Malky Johnson the leader of the Garrisite Tongs street gang, in the face with an air gun. Did you enjoy uh, revisiting Small Faces? I did. I really enjoyed revisiting Small Faces. My memories of this film, I remember watching it not long after it came out. I think it came out on the back of Trainspotting, and I, I think even the, the poster or the video 
did reference train spotting. Yeah. I remember renting this from my local video store at the time and watching it and actually giving it to my mum to watch and she really enjoyed it as well. It was a great film and revisiting it after I, I probably hadn't watched it since I originally watched it. It was fantastic to watch it again and I I really enjoyed it. it it's such a good film. It's compact. like it, It's an hour and 45 minutes which is slightly over <laughs> the squally time yeah. that we have the swally, mentioned in the past. The, the, the swally attention span. Yeah, but it, it keeps you going and it's a quick 145 mm. minutes. There's there's not a lot of fat on there. Kind of keeps going and yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching this again. It was great. What are your first memories of this? Did you watch it when it first came out? Um, no, I think it kind of got... it. I was watching an interview with... Um, Kevin McKidd about Small Faces because this was actually his big break. This was his first film. Um, he filmed this before Trainspot and then he said that he remembered Danny Boyle coming up to Glasgow when he was getting ready to start shooting Trainspot when he was cast in Trainspot and, and he he watched some of the dailies and things um, with uh, Gillis McKinnon, the director. So I, I know for whatever reason, I, th- I think although it was maybe shot well in advance of Trainspot and it, it's obviously come out round about the same time but I, I think it kind of got it sort of got buried a little bit by Trainspotting I think obviously Trainspotting a bigger budget a bit more I guess Danny Boyle had a bit more uh, oomph maybe than the McKinnons in terms of you know the soundtrack the talent that he had in the film and stuff but the, I, if I, I first came aware of it when I um, when I went to buy do you remember Virgin Megastore in Aberdeen, they would sometimes sell rental copies of movies before they were released for retail. Um, yes, And I they do. were always in a bigger video box. And when and they were more expensive as well, obviously. And I remember the day that Trainspotting came out on video, I was at college in Aberdeen and we were up in the, at the Bridge of Dawn at the Gordon Centre. And then on, my, on my lunch break, I jumped on the bus into town, went to Virgin, paid £20... <laughs> copy of train spotting 20 quid in 1996 rather than just wait until the the retail uh, editions were released and small faces was was one of was one of the trailers uh, and that was that was how I sort of came across it so as soon as I could I uh, like you I went to the video shop and got it out I think I watched it with my dad actually it's interesting you say that I I didn't realize that about Kevin McKidd in mm-hmm. terms of him being uh, in this before Trainspot, no, I didn't. I, I I thought he did it after Trainspot, and because you know he's he's got a much bigger part in this in 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 Trainspot, and he wasn't although his character Tommy is a big part of the book. Um, but in the film, he does have some brilliant scenes. But he's like he wasn't on the poster. I remember the poster was the was uh, Ewan McGregor and um, Kelly McDonald and. Ewan Bremner and Bobby Carlyle. So to, to, to kind of talk about the film for a moment, uh, obviously a young cast. The three brothers are played by Ian Robertson, Joe McFadden and Stephen Duffy. I remember the credits of the film saying that it was introducing Ian Robertson, but he'd actually, he would actually been acting for a little while. He'd been, he, was, he went to the Sylvia Young Drama School in London. And he was only 13 when he made the film, exactly the same age as the character of Lex is supposed to be. And he's the lead, you know, for a 
it's his first movie, arguably, he's got the most scenes. And he's I don't think he's ever been better, Ian Robertson, in anything that he's done since. Like, speaking personally, uh, what do you think? Oh, he's fantastic in this. Like, he, he plays such a well rounded performance i haven't seen him in much else like i've I've looked on his imdb obviously and mm-hmm. wikipedia and and seen what he's done but yeah in this he is fantastic and it, you're kind of you're with lex you kind of you're absorbed in his character and it is his film to be such a young age and to do this performance, it, it yeah, he's amazing. He's an interesting character because he describes himself as as a genius. So he's got the voiceover at the beginning and at the end of the film, he narrates. And he's he's sort of a, a mix of his other two brothers. So there's, Alan is played by Joe McFadden, who I'd seen in a few things before. He was in Take the High Road for a while, Joe McFadden. He was, yeah. That's where I knew him from. And that's one of my points on the list. Like, is... Should Joe McFadden have been bigger? Because he was in Take the High Road. I know he was in The Crow Road, mm-hmm. which obviously I haven't seen, but I, I know of it. And then he's had like bit parts here and there. I think he was in Casualty for a while. All I really know of him since then was he was in, I think he won Strictly Come Dancing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he, I think the character he played in Take the High Road was a bit of a. If I remember correctly, he was a bit, a bit of a bad boy. Sort of moved up from Glasgow to wherever I take the high road was set, up to the Loch Lomond side or whatever. And um, but then I, th- I think he sort of exclusively played nice guys ever since. I I never saw him on Hobie City, so I don't watch that or Casualty or whatever it was. He was good in the Crow Road, but he plays a nice guy. I mean, the character he plays in the in the Crow Road isn't that far removed from the character of Alan in Small Faces. You know, nice guy, friends with everybody, the kind of peacemaker. So I'm not sure, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not got much of a range. <laughs> I don't know. But certainly, uh, it did look like he was going to be quite successful uh, when this film came out. And then the other brother is played by an actor who we don't see anywhere near enough of. Uh, he's he's popped, he, he pops up in the odd thing now and again, um, Stephen Duffy. He popped. He popped. Last thing I saw him in was he popped up in an episode of Still Game, playing uh, Bobby the bartender's successful friend, putting a bit of weight and everything. I remember after Small Faces he got uh, Tinsel Town, which is one. Well, maybe maybe we'll do that on the on the podcast at some point with Don Steele. Do you, do you remember Tinsel Town? I do. Yes, and I remember Don Steele yeah. very well. <laughs> and then the, obviously, as I mentioned already, Kevin McKidd and he's. Evidently, his first big movie, playing the the leader of the Garrisade Tongs, the brilliantly named Malky Johnson, and then Laura Fraser, who's gone on to moderate success. I mean, I think her big break, well, not big break, but her big show has been Breaking Bad, and more recently, Better Call Saul. As uh, she's uh, she's there as Joanne McGowan, the kind of love interest of Alan, Bobby, and Malky, and Claire Higgins as. Uh, Lorna, the brother's mum, who I found out today isn't Scottish. I always thought she was Scottish, but she's English. So there's a contender for good Scottish accent there. Well, Claire Higgins, in in my opinion, her best role, she was Julia in Hellraiser. I've not seen that for years and years and years. 
I can't really remember. Oh, really? Yeah, it's been like oh, over 20 years since I've seen Hellraiser. Ah, you need to watch Hellraiser again. It is a fantastic film. But yeah, she's the kind of main female protagonist in Hellraiser, kind of the the, the main woman. Uh, but yeah, she's she's brilliant in it. And to talk about Laura Fraser, as you mentioned earlier, I, there's always been something about her I've I've always liked, and I, I guess it must have been Small Faces was the first time I saw her because that is her first film role, really. Obviously, she is fantastic as Lydia in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. And it actually took me a couple of episodes to realise it was her when I was watching. And, you know, because her accent is so good and she's so convincing. Now, her character, Joanne, in Small Faces, she's a a bit of a strange one, isn't she? I mean, she's got her finger in all the pies and you know her her fingers are literally covered in rings that different gangs have have given her but she gets about a bit doesn't she you know big andy from the fleet you're not a bad team andy chipped tam at lamella so tam waited for andy outside his house and andy comes along with his bird only it turns out the bird is the sister of one of tam's team i didn't hear that and in point of fact it wasn't big andy it was sugar riley that claimed tam and it wasn't stabbing. Aye, it was. I was there. Shuggy took a hammer to him and knocked out Tam's eye. I know because I was there. So Tam's cousin and his crew get Shuggy's brother and drop him three floors down the stairwell at Voldora Dance Hall. And Shuggy asks the cousin for a square goal. Only he turns up in the night and rabbit clutches his ear with a shotgun. I mean, Christ, Bobby, do you want to talk this shite all night? What do you mean? She, yeah, she's a bit weird though. I mean, it's a bit of a strange part because you're not really sure exactly where her loyalties are. You know what I mean? She's you know, she goes ice skating with uh, Charlie Sloan, who's the the leader of the the other gang that Bobby's a member of, the Glen. Um, and she's you know she's Malky Johnson's apparently in love with her and thinks that he's her he's his girlfriend, and she's quite keen on Alan, but she sort of goes around trying to appease everybody. I think she sort of comes good. At the end of the film, the the scene with her and Lex at the end, when she gives him back his shoe, <laughs> and brushes his hair and all that for him, and they're walking across the park. Is she, you know, she? I think she sort of she sort of redeems any ambiguous acts that she may or may not have committed um, earlier on in the film. Yeah, I mean, we are skipping very much forward in the film towards the end, but that is one of the parts that I love. It the last twenty minutes or so of the film. And Lex is heading to, to Tongland to avenge Bobby's death. And Joanne finds him kind of sitting on the street and he has this brown paper bag. I mean, is he huffing glue? Is that what we're meant to, to think that he's doing? Because he's too young to buy alcohol. Oh, I, I'm not sure. I thought he was... Um, I don't think... So. Maybe he is. I never really thought of that. I thought he was... Because he's obviously ran away from home. And I, th- I thought he was just like asleep. And she'd woken him up. But you might be right, actually. Possibly. It's a bit unclear. But the part I love about this is that he runs away and he loses his shoe. And the last 50, 20 minutes, the climax, when he's going to Malky's flat and then he's kind of running everywhere, he's doing this with one shoe. And you see him kind of hobbling around as he's running. And for me, it's just one of the brilliant ways that they can weave a comedic moment into something that is you know very serious as well and they weave it in so well 
at the end when Joanne's doing his hair before she takes him home and just the way that he says, can I have my shoe back? He, he, he does have some good lines. He's, he's got another good line toward the end when he's sitting on Charlie Sloan's stairs outside the tenement and uh, he says, um, Ch- Charlie Sloan explains to him how it's organised crime from now on and he says, organised crime? Is that why you're still doing your mammy's shopping, Charlie? <laughs> it's about Alan and Malky Johnson, Charlie. Ah, Malky. The twisted lovesick bump up. Sorry, wee man. Can I help you? Strictly organised crime from now on. Organised crime? So is that why you're doing the shopping for your mammy? <laughs> so yeah, obviously the movie's set in the in the 60s. Glasgow's had a, a sort of culture of gangs in the kind of poorer parts of the city since the 1930s. As I mentioned already, the two gangs that are in this one uh, are the Garrisade Tongs, which is based on a, an actual, like a real Glasgow street gang from around about the same time, although the, the Garrisade is not part of Glasgow. It's a made-up name. Um, the Tongs were in Calton, and the other one's the Glen, but I was looking at what some of the other gangs were called in Glasgow around about this time. And I've made a wee list of my favourites. So there's there's the Fleet, there's the Cumbie, the Sand Toy, Toy spelled T-O-I. I don't really know what that's in reference to, the Sand Toy. The Beehive Boys, I think that's my favourite. Uh, the Spur, the Shamrock, and the Calton Tongs. And apparently the, the, the gang, the Tongs, named themselves after an old Christopher Lee movie that was out in the 1960s called Terror of the Tongs. So that's where the name comes from. You were obviously originally from Glasgow. Was this gang culture still prevalent when you were there? I, I not that I ever saw. We lived in, you know, they, they, I think these gangs would sort of traditionally come from the the sort of poorer parts of the city. You know, I lived in Bishop Briggs, <laughs> so there wasn't any. There wasn't any gangs that I that I knew about. I mean, I I, I believe that it is still quite a serious problem in in certain parts of Glasgow. I don't think they're as well dressed anymore as they were in the nineteen sixties. You know, no, there's not. This is not all sort of made to measure suits and crumby jack, uh, crumby jackets and all that sort of thing. It's more fucking leisure wear than <laughs> Fred Perry polo shirts. So to speak about. Bobby, the third brother, he's quite a, a tortured soul. And they do touch upon one point. They mention, I think he says he's 18. And you think, geez, you've had a, a hard paper round. <laughs> he's obviously a very tortured soul because you see him you know, having nightmares in the middle of the night and waking up sweating. And one scene that is, is beautifully played out, and you're really on edge for him, is when they go to the Low Roof Club. All the, the Glens are outside waiting to come in because Malky and you know the rest of the Tongs are going to be there. And poor old Bobby is effectively on his own. Lex is hiding in the toilets, but Bobby's there on his own. And he runs at them, and it's such a great scene in terms of the, the you know, your really kind of heart-in-mouth moment. And then when Lex and him manage to escape through the toilet window, and that's I guess that's where Lex loses his shoe for the first time. So it's a nice little callback when he loses his shoe at the end. Yeah, um, when I first introduced to him, he's in the process of 
overfeeding Lex's fish and pouring the whole tub of fish food into the into the uh, into the fish tank. But that scene that you're just talking about, that I think that's a standout scene in the film. They when Lex and Bobby make their escape from the tongs and they get, you know, they steal the guy's push bikes and they're riding away. And there's that brilliant shot when one of the tongs kind of breaks away from the rest of them and starts sprinting ahead. And when the other guy throws him like an iron bar or something, and he get he's, he's he almost catches up to Lex and he swings the bar and it misses the back of Lex's head by a by like a, just a few inches. That's a great scene. Now, obviously, I've seen this film before, but that scene during that bike chase, I felt genuine tension of are they going to get caught? And what makes that scene for me is something that they do so well in this film you have genuine tension are they going to make it are they going to make it they make it and then you have the comedy part where lex just rings the bell on the bike and him <laughs> and bobby have a little laugh <laughs> celebrating by ringing the bike bells <laughs> and it's just a nice bonding moment between bobby and lex because you don't see a lot of them together you see a lot of lex and alan but bobby and lex not so much so it's a nice little moment for the two of them yeah, it, it doesn't last very long, unfortunately. But yeah, you're right. You know, Lex seems more, he seems to have more in common with Alan in that Alan is an art student. Uh, well, I think they're all still at school, but he's he's applying for art school during the course of the film. We, we, we see him at the end at art school, um, kind of catching the eye of the naked model that he's painting. Um, but Lex is... Uh, He's got a lot more in common with Alan than he does with Bobby, but he still seems sort of drawn or interested in that element of of life, you know, he's the kind of the gangs and all that sort of thing. But yeah, to go back to Stephen Duffy, he's he's it's such a he's, he's Bobby's quite a tragic character, really. You know, it's it's suggested that that their their dad who has who has passed away used to give Bobby a harder time than anybody else because he was the oldest, and you know, he's he's. He has nightmares. That in in one scene, he's he's in bed with his mum because he's been having nightmares. She's taken him beside her in her bed in the kitchen. Um, and there's the scene where he he, he freaks out at the skeleton that Lex buys Alan at the beginning of the film. Uh, Lex buys Alan a skeleton so to paint and sketch and draw. And uh, they've got it under the bed and the I think one of the the arm or something's kind of poking out and it freaks Bobby out and he smashes it up with a hammer. But he's massively in denial because there's the the scene between him and Alan, and he kind of says that you know Dad apologized for everything he did before he died, and Alan knows right away that that's complete bullshit. You know, and that's a scene as well when we establish that he can't he he, he can't read very well, uh, Bobby. You know, he's he's trying to read the newspaper and he's kind of following the words with his finger and reading out loud. And Lex starts insulting him by spelling out the by spelling out the insults like M O R O N and kind of because obviously boy Bobby not being sharp enough to understand what he's talking about. Yeah, you you do feel really sorry for Bobby at that point though. It's it's a shame. It's funny, but you feel sorry for him when he's turning to Alan. You know, what's he saying? What's he saying? But if you were to ask me prior to the rewatch. Mm-hmm. There's two scenes from Small Faces that would have stuck out in my memory Mm -hmm. that I would have remembered. And the first one is a good one for Bobby. 
it is the scene where he smashes the brick into Malky Johnson's face. And that's great. And again, that scene works so well because, again, there is genuine tension in that scene. And I'd, I'd kind of forgotten how it went, but you are quite tense when the Glens effectively get kind of hemmed in with the tongs and <laughs> fight their way out. Yeah, I mean, it's a good. I mean, apparently the film was released as a 15, and there was a bit of uh, an argument that it should have been an 18 because of the scenes of violence. But, you know, I think probably the most shocking scene is when Fabio, uh, Alan's friend, gets beaten up, you know, when the girls start picking on him when he's walking home and then a couple of the guys from the Glen come over and put him in the hospital. That's pretty, That that's, and again, you know, you don't see him, you don't see, like, the punches connecting or anything like that, you just, but I think that that's where the kind of power of the scene lies and that it's not particularly graphic in that sense. That is the one scene that left me very uncomfortable when watching this film. Yeah. And had me kind of squirming in my chair. It's it's not a nice scene to watch at all. And you almost want to no. look away because you feel so sorry for him at that moment. And, you know, he's done nothing wrong. And I guess it shows that that's just what happens, you know, with the gangs. I was going to ask you about Fabio. So do you think there's a little bit of maybe sexual confusion from Lex? Because he seems to... He seems to... I, I hadn't really noticed it before when I'd watched the film before, but this time it, it did occur to me because he, he seems... He sort of idolises Fabio a wee bit. You know, he, he gives him the big light bulb that he's, that he's found in a bin <laughs> for him to draw. And then when he goes to see him in the hospital after he's been beaten up, he can't, he can't look at him, you know? I hadn't thought that before until I rewatched it. And I did pick up on a little bit of sexual tension i think you could probably say between lex so i i I think maybe he is slightly confused and trying to work out his feelings i mean he's only 13 you need to remember i've never seen the actor who plays fabio in anything else i don't think he's he's, there wasn't much on him um the actor's name's david walker but the, the 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 scenes he's in are 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 good scenes you know there's the scene near the start when him and alan and Lex are in Glasgow School of Art and Lex thinks he's going to get to see a naked woman being drawn in the still life class and they shove him through the door and it's this fat old guy in a sort of thong <laughs> and then this this the scene at Fabio's house with Lex when he's giving him the light bulb and he's Fabio's Italian dad's outside wrapping his he's trying to grow grapes in his back garden to make his own wine yeah that is a bit weird he's just trying to sort out his grapes the other weird character, and one I would like to query, is Uncle Andrew. Yeah, he's a bit. Un- it's an unusual character as well. Um, I mean, he's well, he's well played. I was trying to think where have I seen him before, but of course he's uh, he plays Grandpa Grandpa Joe in Dairy Girls. Ian McKinnery. I haven't watched Dairy Girls, I'm afraid. But uh, my query is, what's his deal? Obviously, at the end of the film, it's revealed that their mother has ended up marrying uncle andrew in the previous scenes you see him you know he's pissed at new year and he gets his his tattoo of his ex-wife out and he pretends to be electrocuted and then he leaves to go back to america my question is what is the story there who is he i i thought he was like a an uncle you know hence the name uncle andrew 
But what is his backstory? It's never really explained. He's supposed to be his dad's brother. I think that is explained. And he's his dad, yeah, because he, this, this, this scene in Queen's Park with uh, him and the brothers when they're up at the flagpole and he's talking about how his dad, the, their dad never wanted to go to America with him and he went on his own. And it, he's got, you know, he's got this sort of weird American slash Irish slash Scottish accent. Like he's obviously been cultivating for the last however long. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. I, that had passed me by. I was obviously focusing on the other part of that scene where it involves Lex and Alan trying to convince Uncle Andrew that Bobby might be gay. And to be fair, he's very understanding of that. <laughs> yeah. Was he not, well, is it not suggested that he was in the Merchant Navy or something like that? Is that his tattoo? So he would be quite understanding. <laughs> I mean, that is a good scene, um, the party. Uh, I think it's supposed to be New Year's Eve, I think, isn't it? When, the, the, when he, he pretends that he's been electrocuted. And who is the... Was that Andy Gray? I can't remember. Yes, the wonderful Andy Gray. And he is credited as Tactless Man. And that's the name of the character in the credits. Tactless Man, Andy Gray. I thought that character would surely have deserved a name because he's got a couple of lines. Yeah, because he's like... He's he's obviously a neighbour or, you know, a friend of the family, him and his wife. I was like, I wonder why they never gave him a name. When I was watching the, I watched there was a they, they did a Q and A at the Glasgow Film Theatre on the twentieth anniversary of the movie, and they had Gillies and Billy McKinnon, uh, Billy being the writer and Gillies being the director, but they, they they wrote it together. And Ian Robertson was there, Joe McFadden was there, Stephen Duffy was there, and they had Kevin McKidd on Skype because he's obviously a big star now, you know, so he was on Skype from America. And um, I don't know, like they don't Billy and Gillis McKinnon don't seem to agree on everything about the film, like some of the themes and and they, in fact there's there's well, I can't remember what Gillis McKinnon was talking about. Billy McKinnon just says no, I don't agree with that. <laughs> um, well, but the one thing they do agree on is that it's not a it's not a coming of age story. They were quite adamant that that wasn't their intention. But as I said at the beginning, it's it's kind of loosely autobiographical I guess uh, maybe the character of Alan is supposed to maybe represent Gillies McKinnon because when I was reading his bio he went to art school before he became a director. I'm not sure who or if anybody is loosely based on Billy. Maybe Billy kind of bases Lex on himself a bit. I have no idea. It wasn't mentioned in the Q&A. So they, in terms of the themes and all that kind of thing, that one good one scene which is right in the middle of the film when um no, no, but no, not. I think it's near, near the beginning of the third act when Lexi goes to Tongland and he stood there near the wall with a big sign that says "Welcome to Tongland." And there's like the rain and the sky seems quite low, and he sees Gorbals and Gorbals, and he asks where the tongs are, and and and, and Gorbals runs off. Gillis McKinnon was saying that he kind of meant for that scene to look like sort of like kind of kind of between heaven and hell. You know this because it's like a big kind of wasteland. I think it was filmed at. Um, I think I think the flats remind me of the flats at Sight Hill in the north of Glasgow. I think it might have been filmed there. But yeah, it is a good scene with the camera sort of surround kind of circles around Lex and you know Gorbals runs away. He's a good character, Gorbals as well, isn't he? I saw you earlier. That's right. I scare easily. You and the tongs? Nah, I'm a pacifist. Between you and me, the tongs is a load of crap. 
What's your name? Garbles. My family moved for the Garbles two years ago. My real name's George. That's a cracking shot. Thanks. I was thinking of joining the Tongs. How old are you, son? Thirteen. You? Sixteen. You're awful wee for sixteen goggles. I smoke a lot. You know the Tongs then? Know them. I love the one. It's my stepbrother. Here. Yes, to speak of Gorbals, he's a great character. And it's uh, he's got some great moments, some very good lines. And of course, he effectively kills Malky Johnson and saves the day. And that's quite an uncomfortable scene where yeah. he's getting beaten up as well by Malky. But that's the thing. If you were to wake up coughing and all of a sudden the room smelt of gas and you went over and turned off the gas fire... Is the first thing you're going to do spark a fag? <laughs> well, no, but um, you know, obviously, Malky isn't is isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know. Now we haven't spoken about the scene that is probably the most memorable scene of the film. If you had said to me last week, small faces, the first thing I would have thought of is, of course, the ice rink scene. The image of Bobby's body being dragged across the ice with the the blood trail behind him is something that just stuck in my memory. But how did you feel watching that scene again after a, a, a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think I felt the same as you. You know, they the I I found Bobby to be a a much more uh, sympathetic character than I'd found him previously when I watched the film, maybe because I'm a bit older and wiser now myself than I was the last time I saw it, I have no idea. So it's sad, it's it's quite upsetting when Bobby gets stabbed um, at, at the ice rink. But then, yeah, to your point, when the when the kind of medics drag him off the ice to the flo- to the side of the rink and there's the big blood shriek kind of cutting the, 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 the frame in half. I mean, it's very well shot. I mean, obviously you got you got Lex up in the gallery trying to warn Bobby but Bobby can't hear him because of the music uh, in the ice rink and then Malky appears under the balcony and he's got that he's got the plaster in the shape of a cross across his face because he's been he's been shot in the face with an air rifle by, by an air gun by Lex and then he's been then he's been bricked in the face and apparently they were they were trying to emulate Jack Nicholson's character in Chinatown he spends quite a lot of that film with a big plaster across his face but yeah you know just sort of Malky just kind of skates into the uh, into the frame and looks up at Lex who's obviously been he set all this up because he was trying because uh, Sloan headbutted him just before the the fight between the Glen and the Tongs he's tried to he's tried to set up uh, Charlie at the ice rink with the Tongs and he's inadvertently set up his own brother which obviously that leads to the actual kind of running away, he can't bring himself to go home and face his mum. So yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one to watch, that scene. It's, as I say, especially because I've, I've, I've got more empathy for Bobby than I had previously. Such a memorable scene. But to be honest, when it came up, I was thinking, I can't remember who it is that actually gets it here. I, you know, you're thinking, I know it's not Lex, but is it Alan? Is it Bobby? I couldn't remember. And then I thought, well, then you see Bobby kind of skating around behind Charlie and the girls and you think, ah, yeah, it's definitely Bobby that dies. Oh, poor Bobby. What a shame. So yeah, I, I felt bad for him there. Yeah, I know. I know. Poor old Bobby. 
So so yeah, um, no, I, I enjoy going back to Small Faces. It's it's I think it might be one of my favourite films. I mean, it's I, I just the the performances are all really good, and it's even even the even like the extras and everything, they're all very sort of authentic characters. You know, even the ones like the the, the girls who hassle Fabio and just the, the the characters that are in the smaller scenes that are sort of incidental. They're all very sort of authentic, you know. Um, and I, I hadn't realised just what a brilliant performance it was for me and from Ian Robertson when I'd watched it in the past. You know, I, like I said, I guess like I said before, I don't think he's ever been better than he than he was in that. And I've, I've seen him in a few things. I mean, he, he was in the Debt Collector with uh, Billy Conley, and he was in Plunkett and McLean, the small part in that, and he was in Sea of Souls. But I never watched that Sea of Souls, but I know it was quite popular. Um, and a few other. He was in Grange Hill after he did Small Faces for a while. Funnily enough. Oh yeah, I remember him in Grange Hill. Actually, yeah. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. You're totally right. So I really enjoyed it. But let, let me ask you one last question: Who's got the best clothes, the Glen or the Tongs? <laughs> um, good question. Uh, the Glens are a bit sharper with their suits, but I'm gonna go with the Tongs purely for Malky Johnson's tartan scarf. I love that scarf. It's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, I think the, the Glens, their suits are a little bit too maybe modish for my liking. What about you? I, I, I mean, I think when I was younger, I would have had to have given it to the tongs, but I don't know. I like some of those Italian styles that the Glen wear, particularly Charlie Sloan. Although he, he does do something bizarre. In the first scene where we meet him, when Alan and Lex are in his bedroom, he takes off his jacket and puts it on his bed. And then he sits on his jacket instead of hanging it up. <laughs> Alrighty. So, what are we going to be talking about? Our, our next one is our Christmas edition. It is. Our next episode will be coming out on Christmas Eve. So, for that, we're going to pick a, a lovely Scottish Christmas comedy film. Now, what could that be? Well, we're going to discuss the 1984 Bill Forsyth film, Comfort and Joy. Brilliant. I look forward to. Before I've not seen that for a long time. In fact, I've only seen it once, I think, and it was years ago. So I'm looking forward to watching that again. Little shock alert for you. I don't think I've ever seen it, so I'm really looking forward to watching it. All right. Well, that will be coming out on Christmas Eve. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the episode and enjoyed revisiting Small Faces with us. If you would like to get in touch with us, uh, if you you know want to drop us a line or get us to review something, then please email us at cultureswally at gmail.com. And if you would like to follow us on social media, you will find us on Instagram at cultureswallypod. Or if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you'll find us at swallypod. So thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Greg. Until next time. See you later. Thanks very much. I'll speak to you soon. Oh!